I'm going to introduce. You could stand here for a long, long time. I've been fortunate in knowing Abby for 17 years. That's the length of time I know Pearl, too. I met Abby 17 years ago. You met him almost 24 years ago. Faith, call it what you will, grace of God. But if it not for the man that you're about to hear, you wouldn't be having this meeting tonight. Because he's the first guy that brought the message to our Bill. If you've read the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and I know that most of you have, in there you'll hear in Bill's story, always referring to my friend. And then in the later book, describing Alcoholics Anonymous and other stories that just came out some short time ago, the name Ebby comes out. But always in the first book, you'll hear him referred to as my friend. Should you hear a lot of us at different times and in different parts of the country quoting uh, how Bill came in, how the organization or the fellowship started, there's only one man in the world tonight who knows exactly how it started. Because he was sober and Bill was drunk. So, I give you my friend and your friend, our founder, Evan. Thank you, Dick. I was a big soldier. My name is Evie, and I'm an alcoholic. I know I just had to start this off. The Dick asked me over here. I was very glad to come if I wanted to meet some of you Memphis people. But I had an idea. I was one of two or three speakers, and I didn't know I was going to hold this thing down for 40 or 45 minutes. Back home in Dallas, I'm known as the world's shortest speaker. They used me back there on the different coast for the 10 minute and 15 minute spot. So I don't know how I'm going to go about holding down for 45 minutes, but I do the best I can. In fact, I've been living in Texas for five years now. Maybe I've gotten enough of that Texas braggadocio somewhere in my system. Maybe I will serve to them so I can pull some of that out of the hat. There's a story I heard a year or two after I got in Dallas that all oh, the away fancy. I hope you'll indulge me and let me tell it. The Texas rancher drove over to his nearest neighbor, was about 15 miles, and said, What do you say we go to town and make a day of it? Yeah, I said, All right. Got his hat, and he got in the car, and he started out. As soon as they got out of sight of the ranch house, they Opened up the first of bourbon, had a good long pull on the bottle, and the first guy said, you know, so they shipped 2,000 bulls from Fort Worth the day before yesterday. Nothing was said. They drove on a while and came to a gate and they had to open that. They had another pull at the bottle, and the second guy said, well, you know, I shipped 2,500 bulls from my siding four or five days ago. So they drove along, and just before they got to the main state highway, they stopped for a third good hooker, and the, the first rancher said again, 
You know, I think we're the two biggest bullshitters in Texas. And I hope I have a quiet a little of that so I can get it out tonight. I know that Dick and Jim Drake and some of the other boys wanted me to tell you some of the beginnings of AA as I experienced them. And you know, I think that I appreciate the things that Dick has said and other people said about me. But I sometimes think it might be claimed the same as that I'm Exhibit A in the antique division of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's about it. Well, I got to go back to some of my beginnings. I started drinking when I was in school. I come from Oregon, in New York, as my native town. Went to a private school there. I started drinking last year. I seemed to hold it under control pretty well. But I did get off on a wild party one night. It was a military school, and we had a, a competitive drill. And after the drill, we all went out, and then was some of us went out and got drunk. And we got in a mess, and the principal of the school heard about it. But nothing was said. But I, uh, yeah, I wasn't very well that spring, and they took me out of school before school was over. And that summer, the principal wrote to my father, and he always called me Ed. He didn't call me Ebby or Ed. He said, I don't think we can do anything more for Ed. Which meant that he was just telling me from school. So that fall, my father said, you're going to work in the foundry. My father happened to be in the iron foundry business. So I went to work that fall. And uh, I confined my drinking to Saturday night. Naturally, I had to get up at 6 o'clock and get down. I worked in the, as a motor's helper, which is fairly rugged work, as you may know. And I did that for a year, and I confined most of my drinking to Saturday nights, except around Christmas time when all the dances were going on. And then I really stepped out. I remember I tried to go to work for the drinking and the dancing and Getting down to work at 7 o'clock in the morning when I was young, and you shake it off and work it off by night. And I managed to get away with it for a while. But as I look back and remember those times, I wasn't a very successful drinker from the start. There were times, too, when I'd take some of the older guys around all me home, and other times I'd be climbing a chandelier after three or four drinks. I never knew what was going to happen. The fact of the matter is, when I was about 15 years old, I remember putting a lot of thought into this business of drinking because it was in my family. My brothers drank pretty heavily, my father did. And uh, I kind of figured that if they drank that way, and it wasn't any good for them, and it was no good for me either because I was just about the same temperament as they were. But it was that first drink that I ever took on my own when I walked into the bar of the hotel tonight and all me and ordered a glass of beer all by myself and I was a big shot. And I still say that was the very best glass of beer I ever tasted. Sometimes I can almost taste it again. And somehow that, that just gave me just the same glow and, uh, that beer was a lot stronger in those days and it was real beer. That was about 19. 14, I think. 19, yes, it was 1914. And 
I know that I said to myself, this is for me. And soon after that, when I started drinking, I kept it down pretty well, like two or three drinks. I used to go out uh, an evening that spring. Uh, and this friend of mine I went to school with, he called me up and asked me if I had my lessons done. I said, sure, I used to just a store because the family was sitting in the room. And I said, sure, Andy, I'll go out and have a charge of milk with you. I got time. And we were far from charge of milk. But I managed to get home by 11 o'clock, so there's nobody knowing about it. But I know that the effect and the taste of alcohol is fascinating to me from the beginning. And later on, I read a book called The Common Sense of Drinking, from which a lot of AA was taken by Dick Peabody. He's not dead, but he was one of the first of the lay therapists that had a tremendous following of alcoholics. A lot of other books have been written by a lot of his pupils. The Glass Crutch is one of them by Dutch Chambers, and I can name a half of those, and I can't think of them right now. But he said in that book that the difference between an alcoholic and a heavy drinker was that the heavy drinker might drink just as much on a given night as the alcoholic, but the next day was another day to him, and he went to work, and his first thing in the Awakening in the morning was the office. Well, the first step that the alcoholic had was on the night before, and where could he get the next drink to get bring that party back again? And that always appealed to me because that's the way I was. I'd forget business and want to get somewhere where I could get with the gang again. And he said the effect of alcohol on people of your type is too fascinating. You can't handle it. Don't pick up. But I knew that. But I knew then that, and coupled with the drinking in my family, I figured out that I better lay. Should stay away from it, but I never did once I had that drink. But as time went on, I, of course, got into a lot of more trouble. And, uh,. The family business broke up as one of those things do. It's been running since 1852, and it broke up in 1922. And I was more or less on the loose and going from one job to another. And getting in more trouble all the time. I'm drinking is increasing. I didn't get overseas in World War One, but I was in the outfit that was stationed around right in my hometown of Albany. And in the state armory there, I, I got to be a second lieutenant in this outfit, and we always had a jug in the officer's quarters because there was a druggist in one of the corners right near the armory. And I always, somehow, managed to get a barrel of whiskey, and we could get it because those were the days of prescription. The doctor would issue you a prescription during prohibition, and you'd go in and get this. Find a whiskey, but we got it all we wanted. We got that gallon, gallon jug filled repeatedly. And I was a pretty two-fisted drinking crowd, and they were all older than I was. And finally, uh, we got into a jam one night. We got in a taxi wreck, and I oh, just got superficial cuts on my both wrists and face. But I was kind of a bloody mess. It was just bleeding a lot. My father came in. I was sitting on the bed, and he says, you get out of that. That's the guy tomorrow morning, he said, you leave my house. 
Well, I didn't feel like leaving this house right now, so... Late that afternoon, I walked up and told the captain I was going to resign. Request to be put on the reserve, so that ended my National Guard career, and that phase of the drinking. But things got worse, and my father and mother died in 27, my father in 29. And uh, I was kicking around then pretty bad. I inherited some money from my father. I should have had sense enough to take care of it. But I didn't. I lost half of it overnight in the stock market crash, and the rest I just down the drain over a period of a year, a year and a half. And we used to summer in Vermont, and it was there that I met Bill Wilson, but it was longer ago than 24 years ago. I first knew Bill about 1910. I went to school with him in 1912. Which has taken us back quite a few years. And... Uh, to get back, I, we went to Summers in the Manchester, Vermont. Well, after my father died, the house was vacant up there. We bought a house after all the years that father had spent money at the hotel for all of us. He bought a house in 1923, and in 
the auto is Chef Cornell, and I don't know just where he is. I think he's somewhere in Ohio. I'm, uh, I had a hangover, of course, and these two guys wandered around. I was out and back somewhere in the kitchen, I guess. I remember they came up the back steps. I mean, uh, started, they, they didn't know exactly how to begin on me, because they remembered me and having a lot of fun with me drinking. And I thought I had something on their mind, so I said, well, what, what do you got on your mind? What's, what's cooking? And they said, well, we kind of come and see you, and so we couldn't get some idea in your head about something. I said, you mean about my drinking? They said, yeah, you're not getting anywhere. You're, I understand you're in wrong all over town. And we just sort of, well, we just sort of, we got mixed up with a group called the Oxford Group. And we think that you could get help if you join up with it. And they said, uh, you ever think of letting God run your life instead of every Thatcher trying to run it all the time? They never really talked sense the way I figured it, and it seemed to me that they were just telling me things that I had been taught in my childhood about the right way of living. And I said, well, gee, if these two guys have got something out of this, maybe there's hope for me because I'd just about given up hope, and I tell you, I was willing to quit drinking, but I didn't know how. <coughs> Excuse me. I didn't know how to do it. So I listened to them, and they left me a book by one of these men in the Oxford group. I don't recall the name of that book now. But in it, I could see myself staring out of those pages. Now, the Oxford group, let me explain, was not concentrated on alcohol, alcoholism. It was a spiritual group. It was founded by a minister from Pennsylvania named Frank Bookman, B-U-C-H-M-A-N. It got its name Oxford Group because Bookman got a lot of people interested, and they in turn went abroad, and they went to England and Oxford University, and they got a lot of people interested over there. And from there, they went to South Africa. And they got up quite a big meeting down there. I don't know if it was Cape Town or one of those cities. And the reporters referred to them as the group from Oxford, and then damn name stuck, and it had no more to do with the, with the group or its findings than anything in the world. But just like those things happen, that's the name that stuck with it. And it was called the Oxford Group. And they were really trying to find something. It was that time in 1929 when the crash had come in Wall Street, and the, the nation was kind of a low point economically. A lot of people were hopping out of windows in New York, and that's no joke, because they were. A lot of them hit those manholes head-on from the 30th floor. And a lot of people were drinking terribly, and they wanted to find something in this Oxford group. A lot of people came around to it, and of course, a good many of them happened to be alcoholics. And don't ever let yourself think that nobody but an alcoholic can help an alcoholic, because there were a lot of men... And this group group that were very understanding and had a damn good knowledge of the thinkings of an alcoholic's mind. And I sometimes think that I, I minds are no different than anybody else in this world. We just give in to things that other people do not. Well, anyway, that idea appealed to me. I read the book, and I sold it up for a few days, and I started to paint the house 
But I had a ladder that was too short, and I couldn't get up to all these places. And I made a deal with a boss painter, and he sent around one of his men with some equipment, and the two of us finished the house. I didn't touch a drop all that time. But the minute that job was over, sure, I went right back to Bottle because I had nothing more to interest me. It was a letdown. And it was then, on that means after the painting of the house that I was picked up and taken to this county judge. There's one thing that sticks in my mind, and it always will. I know it was at that time. It may not mean anything to you, it may not get what I mean by it, but as we drove home that afternoon, this uh, constable, John Jackson, left me off at the house that I was living in. And he said, well, I'll be around to get you Monday. This was Friday. And he said, uh, you remember the judge says be sober? I said, yep, I'll be sober. So I went in the house, and I remembered that down cellar I had about a half a dozen bottles of ale, and I know that they're going to be nice and cool. And there's one thing I like in this world, it's Valentine's Ale, and that was it. So I w- went down cellar, and I said to myself, I can't possibly get drunk between now and Monday on six bottles of ale, and I know that nobody in town is going to sell me anymore after they've heard that I... You know what a small Vermont community is. Everybody from 10 miles up and down the valley knows all about anything like that. And I knew that none of any of the bootleggers wouldn't tell me anything. So I got down and I reached one of those bottles and, uh-uh, that ain't cricket. So all right, the judge said, you get there sober, will you? You be there sober. No, that, that isn't, that's cheating. That's somehow. And I walked back upstairs and that damn devil's up on my shoulder. Get off, go on down there and take it. I couldn't take that damn ale. Just, no, that's not the that's not the spirit of the thing. It might be technically I might be all right. I'd get there sober, I technically, but that's not that's exactly what he meant. He didn't say don't take a drink, but that's exactly what he meant. So I took them and put them in a basket and carried them over to the, my next door neighbor and I said, Here, they're yours. And that I had a victory, I know that. I had something that was just like a weight being lifted from my shoulders. And I've often thought about it. In later years, when I started drinking again, why I couldn't recapture that feeling that I had then. But perhaps that's it. It's the pink cloud. And later on, you get a more mature, if I may use the word, Outlook, but I don't think you, if you have a slip, you can ever go back again. Well, as it turned out, I went down there Monday, and there had been a third man come to see me, too. His name was Roland Hazard. Uh, he was a pretty swell gent, too. I never knew him. I never met him before. These other two guys I had. And he was there Monday when I was brought for the judge. The judge started to give me a little lecture, and he says, Hazard, will you uh, take this man? And he says, sure. So I was released from my own recognizance, and the charges were dropped. And this guy took me, and he took me back home and left me there. And a few days later, I closed the house up, went down and stayed with him. He lived about 15 miles below, south of the town. And then we went on down to New York. 
Listen, I stayed with Chuck Carnell when we had a chance to come to see me. I stayed there about a month, I guess. And uh, during that time, we made trips back to Vermont, Hazard and I, and two weeks after I was connected with the Foxy Group, my which was a much looser membership than Alcoholics Anonymous, I really think, I went they got me out speaking. The first weekend that I went out speaking, we went up through Vermont. I spoke in a junior college, two churches, town meeting hall, and someplace else all in two nights. Two afternoons and two nights. And I still don't know what I talked about. But I just felt good about the whole thing and uh, really figured that these guys must have something. But there must be a higher power because they were the ones that originated the the phrase, uh, believe in a higher God or a higher power as you understand him. And it was while I was doing this and, and uh, going back to New York, and I heard about Bill. I hadn't seen Bill, I don't believe, for over a year, although Bill, you see, was born and raised in a town six miles north of this town of Manchester, Vermont, where I used to summer. Also spent quite a few winters there. Uh, and I heard that Bill was in pretty tough shape, drinking bad, and I had been downtown in, the, in Wall Street and seen some of my old friends, one of whom I had Bill's sister-in-law, and he said he was in tough shape, and he said, why don't you give him a ring or telephone? And I said, well, I will, but I want to think this thing out a little and get myself a pretty good story, a pretty good picture, just so. And I can truthfully say now that I believe that if I, that I went over there, that Bill would either go for it, lock, stock, and barrel, or he would have none of it. He wouldn't just play around with it for a little while. I thought that if he put his teeth into it once, he'd stick to it. Because I thought I knew him pretty well. I've been going to school with him and seen him over the years. So I called him up one night. And I didn't get Bill, but I got lost. His wife, and told her what had happened to me, that it must have tried to show me something. Well, I don't even sober myself in about five, possibly six or seven weeks. But I think sometimes the initial effect that we get from the thing is we're more powerful then than we are later on. We get stale. Well, anyway, Lois said, why don't you come over to dinner some night? And then she mentioned the date. I said, fine. So that night, I went over about half past five, I guess, in the evening. <laughs> and, uh, and I rang, rang the bell at 182 Clinton Street. The only person home was an old colored man named Green, who I've known for years. He'd been with the family. And Lois was family and others. And he said, they're both out. Both Mrs. Wilson and Mr. Wilson are out. Come on in. So pretty soon Bill appeared, and uh, he's been drinking, but he wasn't too bad. And he said hello, and this, that, and the other thing, and he's kind of aging around. Then he made me stew. He had to go out and get some ice cream, something else for supper, and well, I know what he's going after. I understand. I've done it so many times myself. So, then Lois came in. 
And there was another girl invited. There was a girl invited because uh, she lived upstairs and had made the place uh, into some apartments. So we all sat down to dinner. And Bill's got a little garbled in the book about the gin across the kitchen table, but no made a difference. The idea is there. So we had dinner, and then we all moved upstairs in those houses, and in the back there in the east, most of the living rooms on the second floor. So we moved up on the second floor, and after a little hammering and hawing, Lord said, well, let's hear about yourself. So I started in. I guess they got me wound up, and I guess I talked to put them at 1 o'clock in the morning. And I remember Bill said I walked the subway with her. And I knew that he wasn't going to go for a drink, or if he had a bottle in the house anyway. And on the way over, he put his arms around my shoulder just before I went in the subway. He said, I don't know what you got, kid, but you got something, and I want to get it. Well, he didn't stop drinking right away any more than I had stopped drinking. Back there that summer when they asked the group boys came to see me, but the idea was in there, and the idea happened to get in Bill's head. And at that time, I had moved to a mission on 1st Avenue and 23rd Street in New York. City. It was run by Calvary Episcopal Church and called Calvary Mission. It was run under the auspices of this Oxford group. It was just a typical so-called Bowery Mission. We had 12 men who were running it and... Uh, <coughs> We only had available beds for about 35 men on their floor every night. So, when I was living there, and about two nights after I'd been over to see Bill, he appeared at the mission. Just as the meeting was about to start, and this, he had a guy in tow, and they were both visibly drunk. Well, not too bad. I'm long about... There's a great many of the, that was the, those meetings there were what's called testimonial meetings. We had a man up on the platform, and uh, he would uh, call on various men in the audience and get up, say what they'd found. Of course, uh, most of them were doing it just to get a place to sleep. They called taking a nose dive for God to get a flop. That's the way they expressed it. Well, in the midst of all these proceedings, Bill gets up and walks up to the platform, and he's about six feet three, you know, and he leaves his elbow on the piano, and he starts to spout. I'm the superintendent. Get him down. That's your friend. Pull him down out of there. I said, let him go. Let's hear what he does say. The guy gave you a dirty look, but he let Bill talk. And then two or three days later, this was sometime late in November, as I've been talking to Jim and Dick and some of the other boys, I wish that either Bill or I or somebody kept a diary back there so that we could remember dates and have some continuity uh, to our stories because you go back 24 years and you turn out to the left, you recall things accurately. Well, this was sometime late in November in 1934. And it's a few days later that Bill got himself a taxi cab and two or three bottles of beer and went up to Towns Hospital in Central Park West. And when I heard he was up there, I guess it was the next day, I went up to see him. Because I made up my mind that having started this with Bill, it was up to me to take it out, which I think is a true thing in every AA 12-step 
Casey, go on. If you're going to do it, don't spread yourself too thin and take on 25 or 30 people. I'd rather see you concentrate on one or two. I don't know whether I'm my brother's keeper or not. But I do think that if you start and put something in a man's mind and possibly in his heart and soul, you got to stick with him to his tough spots as well as his, his victories. Because you the one who started it, and it's up to you to see if he gets on the street. So I followed Bill up up there, and we had some talks, and he got out and went back down around Wall Street and had to make a few little moves in there, and I kept riding herd on him, as they say out in Texas, but I rode herd on him. And uh, he came around, and he began to attend Oxford group meetings, which I might add are exactly the same as AA meetings today. They had a speaker, I mean a leader, that's what they call it. They didn't call it chairman, they called it the leader, and three or four speakers. And Bill spoke many times from Calvary House from Gramercy Park North in New York City. And later on, when we slipped from the Oxford Group and became Alcoholics Anonymous, we went back to that place and had our meetings there up to about two years ago. The original Manhattan Group. Now, of course, uh, Ohio, Cleveland, and one of the other cities, uh, Claim that they are the original AA, but well, I don't know. I kind of dispute that a little bit because there was a clear succession right through from the Oxford Group meetings until the time we broke off, and the meetings went to Adam Bill's house, and then they went to Steinway Hall on 57th Street, and from there to Burke Taylor's shop on Fifth Avenue. And we occupied one of the floors of the Taylor shop. And, uh, let's see, the, then there's a, a direct succession, but I don't care whether Cleveland or anybody else claims their first group, it makes little difference, the thing gets started. So, Bill and I were together a great deal that first winter, and then I went back to Albany in, uh, 1936. And Bill went on to found AA. And he's really the one. I just had something to do with giving him the idea. He went on to, with Dr. Bob, found AA. And uh, in 1937, I had a slip. I fell off the wagon after two years and seven months which is slightly different from that DuPont film. The DuPont film had me fallen off a month after I talked to Bill, but that wasn't so. I was two months, two years and six months later. And I've had a good deal of trouble off and on. You know, if I want to go back and count the years, I can count possibly 15 years of complete sobriety out of the 24, maybe 16 years. But they were the longest for 16 months and 8 months and 7 months and so on. And uh, summer of 1953, I was again in New York City drinking. And I walked into the intergroup one day and uh, Hazel Wright, one of the secretaries there, said, 
I think I've got a man that can help you. He's got something real and something tangible. And she said, I'm going to call him right away. And she called this man and came down to see me. He says, where do you drink? And I said, well, I ran third Avenue. This is Plum. Let's go. And he said, I ran into Eva Graves. And my man originally came to see you over in Paris, France. He said, how's old Eddie doing? This guy said, I don't know Eddie, but I hear he's not doing at all. So he says, Eve told me that you didn't have a chance here in New York, and we don't think you have. I said, I know damn well I have. And look, I can't throw it off. Well, he said, how about going to Texas? Well, I said, I don't know about that. Well, he expounded on the virtues of Texas and the good old American ways of living that were still down in these parts of the country. He gave me five dollars and bought me another drink and said, I'll see you tomorrow night. So he did, and the the performance, and of course, I worked him for another five dollars. That's for sure. And a few more drinks. And that was Thursday night. I said, I'm not going to see you anymore, but the office still holds good. Saturday morning, I walked over in his apartment building, and uh, he was outside. He was coming in one door, and I was going in the other. I said, Charlie, here I am. His name is Charlie Milton. And, uh, I said, here I am. Well, he said, you ready to go to Texas? I don't know about Texas, I said, but I'm ready to quit drinking. I'm ready to drink since last night. So he picked me up in his apartment and uh, got me some clean clothes and a shower, which I badly needed. That night he called up Oli Lancaster in Dallas and said, uh, how about taking this guy down there? All right, he said, send the Yankee son of a bitch down there. <laughs> I could hear all these booming about. <laughs> so the next, we got a reservation that night, uh, American Airlines, for Sunday evening, and it was the Sunday before Labor Day, September 6th. And the dirty stone thrown over here gave me a drink after three months drunk. I got on board that plane, and I didn't know whether I was on a plane or a ferry boat or where I was. And I got off the plane as a man stopped, when well, I would have been off sure in hell if I stop anyway. I got off that plane and I was the first person out of it. They no sooner had that thing rolled up and I was zoom, I was down on the steps. I had enough flying for one night. When I got down there and I looked around, I saw two big guys, and of course I was having hallucinations all over the place. And I said they're either a couple of demon or a couple of goons from some gangster squad. And then I heard that booming voice again. There's the Yankee bastard. There he is. I've seen him in New York. So they got a hold of me and they put me in the car and took me down to Texas Clinic. And I stayed there. I guess I stayed there all together about two or three months. But the first two or three weeks, I, it was pretty rugged because I'm going to tell you right now, I had a roof making all over the place. I didn't believe I was in Texas. I didn't dare go out of the place. Uh, one of the girls there that was taking care of the books and sort of running things took me downtown one day, and I couldn't get back in that place fast enough. I was scared of the car, of traffic, or scared of everything. And it wasn't when I was there two weeks later, the guy said, I'm going out to mail some letters to the airport. Do you want to go out? And I said, I sure do. I want to see this airport and see if I'm really in Dallas. And I got out there, and I got out of the car, and I walked up to this placard that said, Love Field, Dallas, Texas. I put my hand on it, and I said, All right, I'm in Dallas. I believe it. I swear that I stand here, I did not believe I was in Dallas. Because it's been a pretty rugged drunk and a pretty hot summer, and I haven't been much to eat in those three months. 
I was thinking everything I could lay my hands on, then to be cut short like that. Furthermore, they gave me some few goofballs down there, and I hate those things anyway. I hate the effect of them. They just make me... Well, I've, I'm sorry that I've taken up so much time telling you it's all been on myself, but I didn't know how to bring the history. The very A.N., you've all seen how it spread, how it worked. I know that if it hadn't been for A.A. when I got to Texas, I never would have been able to survive. And just coming out here alone, I'd have been lost. It was tough enough as it was because I was among strange people, slightly different ways than ours. Uh, it, it was enough people to get from the Bowery down here in six hours and change yourself all around. But if it hadn't been for those good Texas people and the people in the suburban club, if I hadn't been uh, able to go around there and stay there and shake after two weeks before I went in the club, a little over two weeks, I walked by it one day and started up the steps, lost my nerve, and went back to the clinic. Almost like a guy going back and hiding under the bed. And I know the trouble times, they said, well, I know, I heard him talking, I don't know what we're going to do with this guy, he's going goofy. And then I heard a colored girl that worked there, she's quite an old girl woman, and she said, don't you worry about that man, you just leave him alone and he's coming out of it, he's sick. And that's just what I was, I was sick, mentally and physically, and gradually I worked out of it, nature took over. And then I was able to get around the club and get into the activities. And maybe I got into them too fast. That was the hottest summer that had been on record in the Texas Weather Bureau. I went down on the ranch and I was well, out working the sheep with this man. He put me in as a shoot man. That's kind of rugged work in a 95 degree day. And I got mixed up in an oil deal and I sold some insurance stock and every one of them flopped. The insurance company did, almost. They're still struggling to get back on its feet. And I got in another deal in that flop. I was sober a year, and one month after the year was up, I flopped. And that was in October 1954. Now, that 13 months, and I only had a few days drinking then. And uh, it was over a three-week period, but I... Got slapped in the county jail for 10 days, and that was Mr. Bill Becker's emporium. And they came out, and some friends took me in their house, and I sobered up. And I haven't had a drink since. In other words, I've had about five years sobriety in Texas. Out of five years and one month, I've had five years sobriety. Total. And I know that I'm grateful to Seba Graves over there in Paris and Charlie for following it up. And for the people in Texas and over here, all of you people, who have given me another chance. I couldn't have done it by myself. It isn't under my own steam, I do. And I know that my sobriety in these four years, these last four years that I've been sober, it hasn't been my sole effort has kept me sober. Nor do I believe it has been entirely the friendship and the help of people. I think it has been the help of a higher power. And while I've lost that idea sometimes along the way of life, thank God I got it back again. Because I know that I couldn't exist without it. 
times when I know I'm not like a great many people I hear so often. They say there isn't a day in their lives that they don't fight the desire to take a drink. Well, I'm telling you right now, flat out, I'd go get drunk. I couldn't be that much of a hero to fight it every day and every hour. I don't have that. But I do have periods every three or four months when it's maybe two or three days at Georgia. That's all I think about. He's taking a drink, and if I haven't got myself conditioned to the correct way of thinking and knowing that if I take that drink where I'm going to end up, I have no doubt that this time, I know that that last drink that the drunk, the, the liquor knocked me so badly physically and mentally, too, that I'd never survive another one. And I get that in my head, and I get I keep it there in spite of the fact that I want to go out and... I get sick of this being in harness every day and going to work. And, and uh, I'm getting along in years, right? I like to have a little rest once in a while, but I got to go and work. And I often think if I come home tonight, if I could take one good plug of whiskey or one bottle of Valentine's Ale and go eat, it would help me a lot, and it probably would help me physically. It'd give me a lift. But I know I can't do it. So what is the use of time of the idea? I don't quite, quite get so much the idea I used to. And I'd like to get drunk. Although that occurs once in a while because I think in every one of us there's another person who's an alter ego. And that old drunk, the Dozevi Thatcher, is still in there. He may be dormant, but he's there. He's like a volcano. He takes the top off and he's going, zoom. Or this time he goes, zoom, boom, and it'll be all over. And I haven't got anything much more to say. Except, take your AA and stick to God. And I think that you find that if you're having any trouble, you find help there. I want to thank Dick and I want to thank the other members and all you people who have entertained me, and I sure have enjoyed coming to Memphis. Thank you. And AA and Hal and the boys are passing the remittance basket. I want to say again, if you happen to go out Texas way where Ebby has been and where Ebby has done the last five years, the AA out there is no different than the AA that you have here in Memphis, Tennessee. Because my first visit to Memphis was in 1935. When you first organized and you were getting together then. And one of the great pleasures of AA is to walk in and see men and women right in this audience here tonight who are here and active in 35 that are here and active tonight. Everyone that comes in AA just doesn't walk in, bless themselves, and stay sober. You have a disease called alcoholism, and it's a tough one. Some people are lucky, I don't know. I don't know who I shot, whose mother-in-law or mine that I pushed downstairs that gave me the right. I, I can never grasp, even as today. Why should I stay sober and some other guy didn't? He's an alcoholic just like I am. I don't know what it is. I'm not going to try to answer. But I do know this as long as you remember yesterday. 
It's a great help for them all. The quicker you forgive yourself, the quicker you're going to get well. But when you forget where you found your sobriety, how you got sober, and you retire to the country club, and no longer are active in AA, you are no longer taking your medicine. And if you don't take your medicine someday down the road, oh, you can point to me as every can. I can show you guys that are sober five, six, and seven, eight, and ten years that never show up anymore. But for your information, they're not dead yet. I know a lot of people with a different diseases that have arrested them. You can arrest your alcoholism, and maybe you can stay sober if you never come back to AA. And if you never come back to AA, I'm one that will never miss it. Because if you're ungrateful as that for what you found, I don't think, me personally, that I would need you, and I'm only speaking for myself. Because you found it, I found it, and I think today, the greatest thought that we can have in Alcoholics Anonymous, not for you who are so lucky that are here tonight and all over the world in AA, if God in his infinite wisdom gave us the privilege of staying sober such as we are tonight, and I turn my back on the guy I left behind me, I don't deserve to buy it. That's merely my own opinion. I belong to the greatest fellowship in the world. And that fellowship is called Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything I have tonight, everything I will ever get any other night from here in, comes from men and women. God bless you just like you. May I always be with you. And may someday I really be worthy of you. In all meetings all over the country, those who wish to join us, we close by saying, we are Father. Those who care to, will you join me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For I am the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever.